Well, again, I wish you Happy New Year. I hope that you all had a wonderful holiday season with that Christmas into New Year's and that you were able to celebrate uh, sufficiently the coming of our Savior and the coming of the new year and even combining them together, recognizing the new life that comes with, with Christ. I always find it every, finding every new year we reflect on this, this break, right, between 2023, the previous year, and 2024, the new year, as if anything changes, right? Like all we have done is turn the calendar and the next day is just Monday, it, nothing actually changed, but there's still something very visceral and real about the turning of that calendar, isn't there? There's just something that clicks in our mind, and, and even though the world keeps spinning and turning just as it's always done, even though it's cyclical, even though it's a, a structure and a system that we've made to, to, to kind of keep time and to watch as, as years and, and to measure things, right? There, there's no real substantial truth to it, yet somehow there's something that triggers in our mind that this is new, that, that there's new opportunities. And in truth, the, the opportunities were there a week and a half ago, weren't they? Right? I mean, we didn't, we didn't change our diet in, in that week between Christmas and New Year's because we didn't want to. Like, who, what kind of crazy person would with all of that good food that was rolling around, right? But there is, there's something about the, the, the newness of the year and, and the restoration, the refocusing, the reimagining that comes with, with an empty calendar. It's just a piece of paper, but there's something very real that registers in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls that reminds us that renewal is possible, Something that, that I think that we need reminded of early and often as Christians. You know, it was great that we ended up uh, having this baptism this morning. And, and Xavier's answer and response to why he wanted to be baptized could not have been any more ideal. I could not have planned it any better. Why, why do you want to be baptized this morning? Well, I, I, want, I want to recognize the new chapter in my life, the, the, the new direction of my life. It recognizes the renewal. It's something that we need reminded of early and often as Christians. Salvation is a punctiliar moment, right? It is, it is something that we accept by grace through faith that, that we have believed, but it is also something that we live into. Baptism doesn't save us, but it's a step, right? A step in the direction on the path that Christ has called us to. Into the process of renewal. It's a recognition that as imperfect as we are, God is constantly in the process of sanctifying, making us useful, restoring, renovating, renewing us mind, body, and soul. So what I want us to talk about over the next couple of weeks. So we're in a, a micro series, if you will, just three weeks that we're going to look at called Made New, where we're going to talk about how, how as works in progress, we need to be aware of what God is seeking to do in us, and we have to maybe reorient the way that we see others and the potential and the promise in their lives as God looks to bring them into relationship with himself. As we join together on this new venture, Let's go to the Lord again in prayer, shall we? Father God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds, Lord, that what we hear today with our ears 
would be for us the very words of God. Lord, though I speak, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that that regardless of what is planned and what is on the page here in front of me, that, Lord, you would speak to these hearts where they need to hear from you, Lord, that you would begin doing the restoration and renewal process, that you would continue the renewal process in their lives. They might take the next best step for them of faith. Lord, renew our hearts, renew our minds, renew our souls, renew our eyes and our ears that we might hear and see who you are and be molded into your image and follow you every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, uh, JJ, those of you that attend know JJ turned 16 a, a year and change ago. And, and when he turned 15, though, his mind totally shifted. There was a, a renewing or redirecting of his mind, and, and 14, 15, he became ate up with cars. It is all the boy could think about uh, all the time. With the advent of his learner's permit and the quick approaching of the inevitability of his driver's license, all he could think about was procuring his own car and, and driving it around and Not just driving it, because I wanted to drive, but J.J. wanted to remake it. J.J. and many of his friends, for that matter, did not think about cars in the same way I and my friends did when we were younger. When I was young, and I was 16, it was about how new of a car could you get. Like we all wanted the, 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 the shiny new car that was in the lot. We were dreaming about how we could get the 1996 whatever it was. I confess that I was a boring teenager and what I wanted was a 1996 Ford Taurus. I don't know why. I don't know why, but something in my heart just said, I'm a Taurus guy. And, and I, I wanted a Taurus through all of my younger years. And I, I actually lamented when they stopped making them. But that, that's what I wanted. I wanted a new, shiny new Taurus that I could drive around. And I, I didn't want a car with rust. I didn't want a car that needed worked on. I wanted a car that looked new. And because for me, it was a, not just a, a, a rolling and transportation thing. It was a status thing. Now, J.J. and his friends did not think about cars the same way as I did. J.J. in particular, we started talking about it. I was like, yeah, buddy, we'll work towards getting you a car, but know that it's not going to be. He's like, that's okay. I don't want a new car, Dad. He said, can I borrow your phone? I was like, no, go ask your mother. (laughs) And he wanted mom's phone or my phone because he wanted to get on Facebook Marketplace. So my boy would get on Facebook Marketplace and he'd start looking around and we came to an agreement. He wanted a car that he could work on and fix up and we came to the agreement that we wanted something like in the 1980s, late 80s, early 90s Mustang Fox body. And JJ started sending me on the daily and sometimes on the hourly Facebook Marketplace postings of things that at one time used to be a car. I mean... Technically, they were still a car in the academic sense, in in that they were made of metal, they had a place where you could put wheels, and at one time they had a working engine and could transport people. But he would send me these cars with busted bodies and without engines and without transmissions or with the wrong transmission. And he'd be like, Dad, Dad, don't worry about it. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. I know on the outside it looks bad, but on the inside it's still good. And with just a little bit of work, it'll be primo. And he would send me these things, and I did not see it at all. 
JJ could look at these cars and he, he saw things in the cars that, that I just couldn't see. We purchased for JJ a 1989 Fox Body Mustang, 88, he's going to correct me, a 1988 Fox Body Mustang on his 16th birthday. That, that car is currently sitting on, in my driveway. It cannot move. It would it did at one point, but during Scoop the Loop last year, we lost the water pump and it destroyed the, the, the what is it? Help me here. The radiator. Couldn't think of the word. Radiator. And then we fixed something and broke something else. And... And J.J. still has these dreams of what this car is going to be. Honestly, the car is now in better shape than when we got it. And it started, though, with J.J.'s ability to see something in the car that I could not. J.J. was able to see beyond the busted exterior and even interior of the car. He, he, was, he was able to see beyond what was right in front of us to the reality of what could be with the right amount of work and effort and grace. Further, J.J. is and was willing to make the sacrifices and put the effort in to make the car new again. I think it's a great example of how Jesus sees us. As a matter of fact, I often say, I, I wish that I could see people like J.J. sees old cars. You could see the potential the promise, even beyond the brokenness of what is. And that is how God sees us. God is perfectly aware of, of the brokenness within us, our sin, our failures, and our faults. But even through that, God sees what, what he can do in and through us by faith through grace, through the power and presence of his Son and his Holy Spirit walking in and through us. See, through faith in the shed blood of Jesus and through the power of his spirit within us, Jesus transforms us, making us suitable to be in his presence and useful for his service. God is constantly in the process of making us new. We are all of us works in progress that God is working on renovating and restoring and reconciling to himself which is exactly what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 11. Second Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11, it says this, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. For we are in our right mind, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. 
The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul's talking about the the core of the gospel, this idea of what God is seeking to do in and through us. Yes, God loves us exactly as we are, but he loves us way too much to leave us that way. His desire is to renew and restore us, to, to make us more, to make us what he created us to be. And he invites us to be a part of that work. But in order for us to receive it, and in order for us to to play a part in that work that God is doing, we have to see people differently. There There is more to people than meets the eye. For better or for worse, there's more to people than meets the eye. And Paul starts out by, by actually talking about the, this moreness that's there by pointing not to humanity, but by pointing to God. See, truly understanding humanity as a whole starts not with understanding ourselves, but with proper understanding of Almighty God. See, we often want to start with that wrong standard. We, we want to start with ourselves and we want to juxtapose or compare that relative to what we see around us. And when we do that, when we compare what we know about ourselves to what we don't know about others, we will always find a way or we will often find a way to elevate ourselves beyond what we should. It's a constant tendency of humanity. All of us think that to some degree we are better than average, what is, which is a statistical impossibility. we got to start with the right standard. And Paul starts with fear of the Lord. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. The verse my mind comes back to often is Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Our knowledge of the world and how it works and people and how they function and what is going on in their lives and what their potential is, what their promise is, what our our ultimate end is, is only possible. We can only understand that if we first start with who God is. Our understanding of who God is is foundational to living the life God has for us and becoming what he wants of us. When we think of fear, though, most of us don't think of it as being wisdom. And that's because, for the most part, our fears are irrational. Our fears are contingent or based upon maybes, what might be true, what might come, what might be our reality. We fear the dark, right? Not because, not, not because of of any inherent evil in the dark, but because of what might be in the dark based on scenarios that we've created in our head. 
We fear the dark because that monster might be under our bed as a child. We fear the dark because that, that burglar might be around the corner. We fear the dark because that noise might be something that will harm us. We fear not because of what we see, but because of what we can't. Not because of what we know, but because we don't. We fear heights. Not because there is any true danger in being up high, but because what might happen if we fall. I actually had an interesting experience with this the other day. And what's interesting about it is I had a, a visceral bodily response in fear to heights. And it wasn't because I was standing somewhere looking down over the edge. I was sitting in my in-law's living room watching a show and someone stepped to the edge of a mountain and my leg just immediately went, Phew. I could feel it inside. I wanted to throw up a little bit. I was super nervous. And I thought to myself, that is the most ridiculous thing. Why are you afraid? Like I'm going to fall through the TV to my death? We fear heights, even when there's nothing necessarily necessary to fear. We fear the water. Why? Not, not necessarily because of what we see or know about the water, but because we don't know what's underneath the surface. And we've seen jaws, and we know something is going to come up to consume us. See, fear of the Lord, though, is not based on wild inventions of our hearts and minds. Fear of the Lord is, is not just simply terror at, at what could be true of God. Fear of the Lord is based in the truth of Scripture. The absolute revelation of God in Scripture, his holiness, his, his omnipotence, the fact that he's all-knowing and all-powerful. Fear of the Lord is a reverential awe. It is a recognition of the infinite power and holiness of God. To be sure, there is a sense of terror that comes with the knowledge of God's holiness and our insufficiency in that department. There is a sense of terror or fear in that sense as, as it comes to what could be the consequences of our sin. But the interesting thing about God is God does not let us rest in that terror I think again about the angels that come and how often when God sends the angel of the Lord to speak to people and their immediately response in being in the presence of the holy is, is terror and fear. But what is almost always the first thing that God's messenger and ambassador says to the person who is shuddering in fear? Fear not. We go further for us as, as people in, in the church age that have Christ and the blood of Christ, that fear not is often followed up, fear not for I am with you. See, God's presence in our lives is then not something to be feared. It is something for us in reverential awe, for us to be aware of, but it is something that should inspire us and draw us forward. God does not seek us and come after us to destroy us. Now, to be sure, I want to be clear about that. this. If we do not respond in faith to the gift of God's grace, there is a destruction that, is, that does await us. There is a reason for terror. But the good news of the gospel is that so long as we draw breath, God is consistently and persistently pursuing us in order that he might restore us and make us new. His, his intent is not to destroy, but to build up. It's a question of whether or not we'll take it or not. Whether we'll 
walk on that path or we'll continue pursuing our own thing. Whether we'll allow God to work and move in our lives or whether we'll fight him every step of the way. Knowledge of God allows us to recognize the truth of not just who and what God is, but who and what we are and were and where we stand with God. Paul has just spent in our passage in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul has just spent the better part of a chapter and a half writing about the fragility and brokenness that defines humanity on the outside. If we look back at just a, a, a chapter, we look at 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7, we see this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that in that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul says that we're all of us cracked pots. We're all of us chipped. We're all of us fractured. It's a reality that we've got to come to terms with. I actually saw a thing on an article a couple days ago, and there's a former Christian artist who has gone his own way since, and he, was, he has rewritten the words to Amazing Grace. And the reason that he rewrote the words of Amazing Grace is he found it foul and insolent that we would sing that we were wretched. Well, that's not good news that I'm wretched. I agree with him on that point, that it is not good that I am a wretch, but it is the truth. I know me. You know you. The fact is that we know the truth of what we've just read, that all of us are under pressure, that all of us are cracked, that all of us are flawed, that all of us have made mistakes. And the good news is not found in my wretchedness. The good news is found in the righteousness of Christ that is made available to me. That even though I am a wretch, even though I am a sinner, God still saw fit and sees fit to save me. That even though I am broken, God chooses to fill in the holes and the gaps where I lack to make me useful for his service. That jars of clay metaphor actually is, is something that would have had meaning for them in Paul's day because what they had is a, a jar and when a jar would become cracked or it would have, it would have holes or, or spots where the, the, the firing process didn't take, what they would do is rather than just throwing that jar away, they would take wax and they would burn the wax and they would fill that hole then in order to see and make sure that all the cracks were full, they would put the candle inside of the jar and the light would shine through where the holes were in a brighter manner and they would fill those cracks with the wax. That is what God is seeking to do with us, to reveal the truth of our brokenness, to reveal the truth of our need, but then to fill that need in. God doesn't just throw us away and say, like, like we do with so many things in our day, where everything is disposable, where everything has obsolescence designed into it, where it's designed to be thrown away and replaced. God doesn't just say, well, that person is too broken. I'm getting rid of them. I'll just make a new one. No, 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 no. 
For God so loved us that he sent Jesus to make us whole again, to fill in where the holes are present. Verses 1 through 5, Paul is, of, of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is a tent maker and he's drawing from personal experience. He notes the temporary nature of tents and the fragility of them in comparison to actual buildings. He says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others what we are. Oh, excuse me. Let me go back to chapter one, uh, verse one. For we know that if the earthly tent in the earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, this body, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that, that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. We understand implicitly that the brokenness that we experience in this life is not right. That the struggle that we have is too much. And that there's got to be something more. The truth is there is, that God has made a heavenly dwelling that, that our broken and our fragile tents one day will be traded for eternal homes that will stand strong forever. We're longing for that restoration and that shoring up. To go back to the illustration of the car from the beginning, uh, JJ has informed me recently that the rust and the broken downness that we see on cars, like to me that's junkiness, but JJ has informed me that that is what we call patina, which is just a really nice way of saying broken junky oldness. I looked up the word and patina refers to fading, darkening, rusting, and other signs of wear and tear on the exterior of a vehicle. They are signs of aging. They are natural and unavoidable realities of the passage of time and the inherent weakness and evidences of the inherent weaknesses in the materials used to build and paint the car. We see those things. That's just the exterior. See, JJ, as he looks at the car, understands that that exterior, that age, isn't necessarily something to be, be frowned upon or be looked down upon. That can actually work to your advantage. And, and JJ understands that what really matters is what's inside, what's going to last, and what's going to make the motion and mobility of that car functional is what's inside, not what's outside. God, too, sees the reality of our brokenness and weakness externally and internally. And the truth is that we see it, too. Our conscience reveals to us not just the physical difficulties of living this life, but also our spiritual struggles. And God is much less concerned with the, the, the physical realities that we're facing, what's on the outside than what's on the inside. Without divine intervention, we are just as broken inside as we are outside. Romans 3, 23 through 24 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 12, he talks about this boasting. He says, We're not trying to commend you again to ourselves again to you, 
but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Paul isn't encouraging the Corinthians to boast about how great Paul is, but rather to recognize that even through the brokenness, God is working and moving and doing incredible things. More importantly, Paul is attempting to get them to understand that God desires to do a similar work in them. See, the external indicators don't always reveal the whole truth. What you see isn't always what you get. And for us as people, as we look at ourselves, as we look out at the world around us, we need to understand, yes, the brokenness is everywhere. Sin is everywhere. But Jesus changes everything. Jesus, Jesus gives us a chance to become more. Because Jesus is more. And Jesus died so that we could have new life. Jesus died so that we could have new life. Jesus was broken to bring about our restoration. Verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and raised, was raised again. Jesus was broken to bring about our restoration. 1 John 2.2 tells us he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the world. I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about, again, the introductory illustration. It's amazing to me how often, in order to fix one old car, you have to break another old car. And there's a lot of parts in JJ's car that the only way that we're going to find that part to replace it is to take it out of another vehicle. In order for JJ's car to run, we are going to, in essence, assure that another can't. Those required parts, replacement parts for restoration have to come from somewhere. And one car is often sacrificed in order that another can live again. In effect, is that not what Christ has done for us? Christ has made a way to remove our stone-hard, sinful hearts and to replace them with hearts of flesh, as it says in Scripture, with his heart, to replace our sin with his righteousness, to replace our brokenness with his wholeness. Actually, it is exactly what it said in Ezekiel 36, 26. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus paid the price to cancel the penalty of our sin. To buy us back from the proverbial junkyard of hell. And to restore and renew us through his indwelling spirit. And Paul is issuing both an invitation and a challenge here. In quite poetic language, he is reminding his readers of the amazing and expansive grace of God. Christ died for me. Christ died for you. Christ died for all of humanity. And when we believe in Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death and resurrection... 
our death is effectively applied to him and his life is provided to us. Our sins are applied to him and his righteousness to us. We are renewed. The fear of God is the foundation of faith, but the love of Christ, it's the love of Christ that mobilizes and moves us. It's the love of Christ that transforms us. Paul himself says, Christ's love compels us. Saving faith is but the first step in a lifelong process of being remade. We believe, what we believe to be true about how Christ lived in love should create the framework of how we rearrange and reorient our lives. See, we make a mistake when we think salvation, again, is just that moment. When we make salvation just coming forward and praying a prayer, or we make salvation just getting into the water and being dunked, if that's all that happened, then we have missed the point. Those are steps on a journey to becoming. Those are steps on a journey moving in and to the presence of God. There's a process that we're entering the ministry of reconciliation is not something that is a one-time thing, but is continuous. And Paul himself is a perfect example of this new life that comes from Christ, isn't he? We could go back to Acts. Before coming to Christ, Paul had a rich and robust understanding of God. Paul actually understood very clearly what it was to fear the Lord. His fear, however, did not transform his heart. As a matter of fact, we could go back to Acts and see that Paul's fear drove him to do some terrible and unholy things. And when we let fear become our driver as followers of Christ, yes, we need to understand and have fear of the Lord, but the fear, fear is not what should drive us. It is the love of God that draws us forward. Because when fear is our driver, again, we act on irrational thoughts. We are reactive rather than responsive. We react to stimulus rather than responding to the grace of God. For Paul, his fear of the Lord led him to put people in chains, to put people in prison, and even to take their lives. Paul's fear led to death and destruction. But then something amazing happens, and as Paul is on the road to Damascus, he has an encounter with the living and risen Christ, and his life is transformed. His transformation was dramatic. He immediately begins preaching the gospel and pointing people to Jesus. Rather than putting people in bondage, he is calling people to freedom. Rather than leading people to their deaths, he is pointing them towards eternal life. And as Paul noted in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he, like all believers, was being transformed into the image of the Son by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17 brings us to the, the, the point of this message. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Through the transformative power and presence of Christ in our lives, we are made new. We are reconciled to God and being reconciled to God. And God invites us not just to accept the ministry of reconciliation in our own hearts, 
but God invites us to join him in his efforts to renew and reconcile the world to himself. And the first step to joining Christ in his work is seeing people as he sees them. We can't look at people the way the world does. We can't evaluate their worth based on what they look like, what value we think they could bring to us. We can't evaluate their worth or value even based upon the rightness of their attitudes and actions. Because that's not the way that Christ sees or behaves to us. The value of people is couched in the potential of the power and presence of the risen in Christ in and through them. We can't just evaluate on what is, but what could be and what God desires to bring about in their lives. Isn't that how Christ began with us? Christ didn't save us because we're good enough. As a matter of fact, Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ Jesus loved us at our very worst. He loved us so much that he came to earth and lived and died to pay the penalty for our failures and faults. He experienced hell on earth in order to make eternal heaven available for us. 1 John 4.10 tells us, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, God's love is not contingent upon our goodness or our value, but upon his greatness, upon his grace, on his mercy and love. He bought us back from hell as is. And we have to learn to look at others through the same lens of compassionate grace through which Christ sees us. We won't serve We won't serve or seek to help those whom we think unworthy or those whom we refuse to love. And we should love them because Christ so loved us. Our new life in Christ requires new ways of seeing, treating, and living in relationship with others in the world. Yes, it reconciles us to God Almighty, but it is a ministry of reconciliation that should reconcile us to the world around us. Our new life carries new responsibilities. Paul tells us that in verse 18 through 20, that we are Christ's ambassadors. To turn once again to the initial illustrations, we are all living the dream of what J.J. would call being sponsored When a car is sponsored, a company provides price breaks on parts or even gives them for free and and gives suggestions on service and in best cases will not only provide the parts but will give money for the restoration process. To apply the metaphor to us, Jesus again paid it all. We are sponsored. We don't have to earn it. God's desire is to place his name on us, to restore us, And to to move with us through the world, through the race of life, that he might be glorified and so that others might come to knowledge of him. And yes, many of us in here would say, I'm not what I was. Praise God, he has made me more. But we must remember we are all of us works in progress. And God continues to work in us and through us by the power and presence of his son and his spirit to make us new. 
As we enter the new year, let us take the time to evaluate the state of our own hearts and lives. As we turn a meaningless calendar, may we see meaningful days ahead. Let us lean into the renewing and reconciliatory work God desires to do in our own lives. But also let us commit to being Christ's ambassadors of the world. Let us look at the world around us with compassionate eyes, with grace and mercy and love. The eyes of Christ. Only then will we see and love those around us as he loves us. I believe that God is still seeking to do an amazing work in this world. That God's work isn't done. That God desires to use you and I to bring about his great salvation and new life. That as ambassadors for the gospel, we can call others to join us in becoming new creations, to participate in the reconciliation and renewal that Jesus Christ died to provide. May we see today that Jesus died to make us new. May we live into that newness, being reconciled to God by his grace. And may we seek to take up the mantle of the ministry of reconciliation to call others to salvation by his grace through faith. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace to us. I thank you for the great love with which you've loved us. I thank you for the great calling that you've placed upon our lives. And God, as we enter this new year, I thank you that what is past is past. And that you invite us to live in the new life that you have for us this day and every day that follows. Jesus, may we see ourselves and the world around us as you see us. May we love as you love. Lord, continue to work and sanctify. Make us usable for your service. And may we serve you well in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we have the privilege of not just celebrating baptism, but also celebrating communion. So at this time, I'm going to invite the deacons to come forward and join me here at the front. Now here at First Baptist Church, we believe in what is called open communion. And what that means is that you need not be a member of First Baptist Church or be a formal member of any church for that matter in order to take communion with us here. If you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and you are committing in your heart to do all that you can to follow him, we invite you to join us at the table by grace through faith in Jesus. This morning, we will take into ourselves the bread and the cup, recognizing the brokenness of Christ's body and the shedding of his blood, remembering that he took our penalty and punishment upon himself in order that we might live new and full lives through his power and presence. Father God, I pray that you would make these elements, this bread and this cup for us to be your body and your blood. Remind us of your great salvation and sacrifice. God, as we receive these gifts this morning, may we evaluate the state of our own lives. May we take the next best step of faith to lean into the reconciliation and renewal that you seek to bring about in our lives. God, reveal yourself to us in these moments. Remind us of your grace. Remind us of your mercy. Remind us of your holiness. And remind us of the responsibility that we carry in light of it. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen.